You can be seated. This is the time in our service when a pastor will stand and just speak to us from the words of God. We try to get in our hearts what God has spoken, in our minds, that we might be shaped by it, and then go live by it. Now, today's an unusual Sunday because we have a confession of faith and a baptism, so our sermon will be a little shorter than usual. But I really want you to feel the power of this story and these words that Jesus has given to us. I don't know where your heart is this morning, but I I get to be the one today in your life anyway who gets to say to you that the greatest reality in the history of the universe is what we are gathered to celebrate today. And sometimes it's hard for our hearts to get to that place, but think what would be the greatest news that you could receive or that you have heard. Like if you were in college and you got four of the exact professors that you wanted for the semester. You know that little feeling when you see those names and you go, this is going to be awesome. It's much better than that. How about if the Celtics, the Sox, the Pats, and the Bruins all won championships in the same exact 12 months? You wouldn't be sober for a while. You'd be on cloud nine. And that would be a great joy, that, that feeling is nothing compared to what's supposed to be celebrated by us today. Uh, You heard of the Powerball thing? It's a pretty sure bet that if you win the Powerball, it will wreck your life. Have you read those stories? So you think you want to win, but you really don't want to. But let's pretend you didn't read those stories, and it was $60 billion because no one had won for four straight years, and your number was the one that was picked. What would happen in your heart right there? You'd be deluded, but you would think that everything just got fixed for you. Has anyone ever gotten engaged and they said yes? You know that feeling? There's all these snapshots in our lives that God has given us of joy, of anchored joy, that are supposed to just be like this little pointer to the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead so that you might inherit infinite joy with him. All that ails you, sin and Satan and death and hell, all of it was vanquished in the victory of the Son of God. So your heart is supposed to be filled up to see the light of the glory of the gospel of God in the face, the living, breathing face of Jesus Christ and respond with great joy. So I know this is Melrose and this is New England and no one ever talks to me when I preach, but if you were ever going to do it, you're allowed to do that today because your heart is excited about these truths. Also, I have no notes today, so I have no idea how this is going to go. I may need some help from the crowd. All right, we're doing a baptism today. We've also been preaching through the biblical book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we're seeing the gospel advance across the known world and baptisms taking place. Jesus had commanded his disciples, preach the good news about my death and resurrection, call people to forsake their sinful lives, to trust in me to be their righteousness, and to follow me every day from there out. And when they say yes to my offer of salvation, find some water and get them wet to show on the outside the miraculous work that has been done on the inside. So there's baptisms throughout the book of Acts. Today I want to tell you the story of one of those baptisms. 
so that you might see the beauty of what's happening with Suzanne and has happened with many of us. And my constant prayer is, would happen with any of you who have not yet believed the gospel. So Matt read the story with us. Let me give you the context. The gospel is advancing throughout the known world. This guy Philip is up in the north in Samaria. He's preaching Jesus and tons of people are believing the gospel and being baptized. Revival hits the villages of Samaria. But then in love and in his providence, God tells Philip, hey, I need you to go south of Jerusalem to the deserted desert road that leads down to Gaza. Philip's immediate response was probably like, seriously? I'm having such a great time up here with revival and church is packed and we're baptizing people and you're sending me down to a road where there will be no water, no lemonade stands, and no people. Philip obeys and he goes. He's walking along this dusty road headed down the Gaza Strip toward the deserted city of Gaza. He's thirsty, he's hot, and there's nobody around and he cannot figure out why God has sent him here. Then in the distance, he sees some dust kicking up from the ground, and he sees this chariot coming. Now, that sounds fancy in your Bible. It was probably a box like this one right here, maybe twice as wide and three times longer, with a driver, a passenger being pulled by an ox or a donkey. Inside of this old-fashioned wooden chariot is a man. And this is what the scripture says about the man. It says, there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, in the chariot. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Okay, think on two things from this text of scripture with me. The first one is, this man was a eunuch. All right, I don't know how I can explain what that is to you non-awkwardly. So a eunuch is a man whose genitals were no longer functioning. Uh, The big idea here was, is that this man, because of an issue with his body, was not able to become a father, was not able to take a wife, was not able to have sons and daughters of his own. And in this time, that was a big deal that your name would end with yourself and not carry on to future generations. Sometimes this was just a a thing that happened from birth. Sometimes it was due to a terrible accident that someone would endure. Sometimes it was done on purpose. That's most likely the case with this man. He was a court official who was in charge of the finances for a kingdom that had a queen at its head. And so he was dealing intimately with this queen in the operations and the finances of her kingdom. If a man was going to have so much access to a powerful woman like that, what's the one way that you could make sure there would be no sinful issues between this man and this woman? I don't know what the verb is, but you would unify this man, or however you would say that. And then you would know there's no danger in this man being with the queen. That was this man's lot in life. It sounds horrible to us, but it was a reality in the Mediterranean world at the time. So he lives in this kingdom in the south. He is a eunuch. And, don't miss this, he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Okay, right there, your heart should start to race. What does this mean? This 
means that this eunuch had grown dissatisfied with his life in Ethiopia. Dissatisfied, dissatisfied with the gods down in that pagan empire. No longer okay with who he was before the living God. Longing to worship and to be made right with and to come into fellowship with God as he was. And so this man was seeking Somehow he heard about Israel's God, the God who created all things, the God who had worked unbelievable acts of power with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel and Job and all the rest of them. And he said, I'm going to go worship their God, the living God. Now we would say God is hunting him out, causing him to seek after him, and this is all in play. How do we know this guy was wicked serious about this? 1,000-mile journey through desert roads in a box on wheels pulled by a donkey because he was being drawn near to God. Now, when this guy got to Jerusalem, I need to point this out to you. In Jerusalem, he would have been prevented from entering the temple proper. In Jerusalem, he had come to worship God, to be with God's people, to learn about the God of Israel. But because he was a eunuch, he would have been prevented from entering the temple proper, the holy place, inside the outer court where the Jewish people were allowed to come in to worship God. He wasn't allowed in. Something was wrong with him. He wasn't qualified. So I don't know what example to give you, but when I was... 16 years old, I wanted to get jacked, like muscles jacked, because I wanted to make the basketball team. And so I started working out at Nautilus Plus in Revere, which is no longer there. I don't know what it is now, but there was a Nautilus Plus over there. And I remember going in as skinny as could be and going with my brother, who was like skinnier than me, skinny as could be. And, you know, we were allowed on some of those machines, but in the back over there, was anybody ever at Nautilus Plus in Revere in the 80s? No, okay. In the, In the way back was the real man's weightlifting room. That's where the free weights were, the mirrors were, the grunts and all that stuff. He and I didn't dare go toward the very back of Nautilus Plus. So, you know, we did the girly machines with the pulley weights and all those kind of things. And they let us over there, no problem. We we didn't dare go into the back. Can you feel that? You're allowed in the room, but you're not really allowed where the real work is being done because you're, something's wrong with you. In my case, you're 16 and a half, 6'2", and 145 pounds. That's some of the feel of the way that the worship of God was in this way. I want to read this to you because what we're dealing with here is what was called ceremonial uncleanness, meaning God is perfectly holy. And so... Not everybody can just waltz into his presence to worship him. A perfectly holy God requires a big level of holiness to come and stand before him. So hear these words so it's clear, and this makes sense to you. The eunuch, the woman who was menstruating, the person who had touched a corpse or a dead animal, the illegitimate son, the Ammonite, the Moabite, and the Egyptian could live among the children of Israel but they were classed as ceremonially unclean. And therefore, they could not enter the holy place 
or fully take part in the observances of the law, the sacrifices, and the feasts. Now, that did not mean that they were sinful in and of themselves. Think of that, right? It's not the eunuch's fault. It's not the woman who's experienced her cycle's fault. It's not someone who was holding someone as they died. That wasn't necessarily morally sinful. It didn't mean that they were sinful in and of themselves. The sources of uncleanness, which included natural bodily functions and various factors beyond human control, were not themselves sinful, but uncleanness and sin are closely linked in Scripture. The language of ritual purity and impurity, ritual, is often linked with moral purity and impurity. And so these purity laws, or the laws that would prevent certain persons from full participation in the worship of God with the community, they were primarily designed to teach lessons about the holiness of God. God's presence in the midst of His people could not be taken for granted and was to be carefully safeguarded. Men and women living in a sin-tainted world are not automatically qualified to come into God's presence. Okay, this is a holy, helpful man writing those words for us. Let me give you the big idea, the way that I try to break it down from my brain. In other words, it wasn't that this man could not father children, and it wasn't these other realities that I just read to you, right? Generations ago, your parents did some horrible things, or you've touched a dead body, or you're experiencing the cycle. It wasn't those things that were the reason that you could not fully enter into the presence of God in the holy place. It was that God used those things as a picture to show you this thing, sin. God needed to make it so clear to his people that it is unforgiven sin that prevents you from being accepted by God and stepping into his presence. He needed to give such a clear picture that he said, there will be some people in the community of Israel who will not be allowed all the way in so that everyone can see that uncleanness, impurity, sin in any way is what prevents us from union with God. And so imagine this eunuch from Ethiopia. He goes 500 miles in a go-kart to Jerusalem and he goes to worship the living God and he does so with great joy, but he is not allowed in the holy place with the rest of the community. There's a barrier, literally a wall up, would have been a big curtain that he could not enter into because he was a eunuch. Does everyone feel that? And what was that reality pointing to? It was pointing to the reality that sin prevents sinners from union with God. Okay. He gets in his go-kart to go back to Ethiopia. I don't think he's angry or frustrated at God that he did not get into the holy place with the rest of the people. I don't think he was like a a postmodern Bostonian American victim mentality, right? Woe is me. I think if this guy was holy, his heart would have been saying, you are the potter, I'm the clay. If in this life you have chosen to give me the lot of being a eunuch who gets to show to the rest of the people the seriousness of the holiness of God, I'm okay, you're God and I'm not. 
So I don't think he's grumbling in this chariot or angry at God. In fact, we see that he has his Bible open, big scroll, and he is reading the text of Scripture as he's driving. That's how they would read in those days, read out loud. He's reading Scripture. Philip comes up alongside him and listens, and this is what the man was reading from Isaiah's prophecy. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Philip hears him reading these words and he gets all excited, right? Oh man, this is why God sent me to this desert road. And he yells up into the chariot, hey, hey, do you know what you're reading? And the eunuch peers over the side and says, how can I if someone will not teach me, will not be ready and available to show me what God's words mean? Who is this about? Is this about Isaiah? Is this about someone else? So Philip jumps into the chariot and beginning with this verse right here, Philip preaches the good news, the gospel of Jesus to him. Now this part of Isaiah's words are some of the most gruesome in Scripture. These are the ones that we read to begin the service. He's painting a picture of a suffering servant who was righteous but would give his life for his people, his life for theirs. And this verse shows a part of it. The eunuch would have just been in Jerusalem. The stench of the blood of animals being sacrificed would be fresh in his nose. And he knew that that sacrifice was for the forgiveness of sin. And now he sees a passage of Scripture of a man being sacrificed like a lamb and doesn't know quite what it means. So Philip unpacks it for him. That lamb is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth lived the perfectly sinless life in beauty and in power. And then he gave that life on a Roman cross and bled out and died. And in the shedding of that blood, atonement was made real for the sins of the world to make clean anyone who would forsake their sin and believe in Jesus. And then, to everyone's surprise, he didn't stay dead, but he walked out of his tomb alive in victory over sin. And now he has sent me to tell you the good news of this gospel. Beginning with this text of Scripture, Philip unpacked the gospel of God making sinners clean through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, we don't know how long this chariot ride was, but if Philip continued to work through the words of Isaiah, a few passages after this one, they would have come across this unbelievable passage of Scripture, which is the heart of our sermon today. After Isaiah unpacks Christ dying and shedding his blood to make sinners clean, the implications of that begin to work out. And I need you to feel this one with me and feel this for this guy in this chariot. For thus says the Lord, this is what Isaiah had written, to the eunuchs, to the eunuchs, who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, and hold fast my covenant. 
This here is the older covenant way of saying, to the eunuchs who believe the gospel, to the eunuchs whose hearts are born again, who no longer walk the path of sin, but turn in repentance and begin to walk the path of righteousness, to say, I'm done with my old life and I am in with faith and obedience. Now, keep my Sabbath is like the big way of saying, does what my law commands. And we know that we're not saved by doing the right works, but once we are saved, the right works will explode out of us. Isaiah says, if you find a eunuch who has begun to keep my law, who is choosing from a brand new heart the things that please me, who is holding fast to my covenantal grace, in other words, to the eunuchs who will repent and believe, or the eunuchs who are born again, check this promise out. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. Do you feel this? What's the one place that a eunuch was not allowed to be? What's the one place that a eunuch's name would never be inscribed upon? Inside the house of God in the presence of God, on the walls of God's house. And why could a eunuch not get his name written in there? No sons, no daughters, no ability to extend generationally the promise of God. But what is Isaiah saying happens because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, because of the gospel? Hey, eunuchs who were a test case of being held out in the older covenant, No more. Jesus has obliterated the barrier that kept eunuchs and anyone else from full participation in the community of God. You believe the gospel? I will put your name in my house, in my walls. And then Isaiah finishes it with this. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Imagine being a eunuch and hearing those words. What's the one thing you knew was not happening as a eunuch? Your last name was finished with you. It was over the day that you died. You had no name continuing. But what does the gospel do? It rewrites every one of our stories, right? It rewrites every one of our stories. And here, beautifully, the man who had a finite name is now given an everlasting inheritance that will never be cut off. In Christ, the eunuch was not welcomed sort of in, almost in most of the way. He was welcomed fully in forever. Fully in forever. Okay, now here's the question from the text that should have everybody in here running laps later on in this service. By God's providence, they come across a pool of water in the desert. How cool is that? The eunuch hears this gospel. Whether or not Luke explicitly told him what I just said from Scripture, this is the gospel that Luke is bringing, an inclusive gospel. Everybody is welcomed in who will repent of their sin and believe. And the eunuch looks out of the chariot and he says, See, here is water, and here we go. Please don't miss this this morning. What's the question? What prevents me from being baptized? 
Please tell me you feel the import of this question. In other words, this is a man who has been prevented from full membership in the people of God up to this point in the story, right? The big barrier, the big wall. And now he puts this question to Philip. What prevents me from being baptized? What's baptism? It's the new covenant sign of entrance into the community of God. You get wet in these waters, and I don't care how bad you've been, how smart you are or how not smart you are, what ethnicity you are, whether you're a male or a female, a eunuch or not, all those categories mean nothing. Once you get wet in this water, you are all in, in the family of God. But what about a eunuch? What about someone who was the definition of unclean, like the poster boy for actually not acceptable? Does anything prevent him from getting into that water? All right, what's Philip's answer? No. Now, if Philip has my personality, what's that answer sound like? No! 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 Can you believe this? No! No! Nothing prevents you. There is nothing preventing you anymore from getting into that water. And so what does Philip do right away? This is what I would do, right? Like, pull on those reins. Commanded the chariot to stop. And please feel this verse. Please feel it. They both, they both went down to the water. Now, maybe Philip's allowed in the waters of baptism, right? But the eunuch, of course not. But what happens in the gospel? They both, Philip and the eunuch, I love it, he's emphasizing it. They both, no, no, don't miss this. Not like the driver in Philip, not the, the animal in Philip. The Philip, Philip and the eunuch, they both went down into the waters and he baptized him. This simple story in scripture should be the greatest delight for the people in here like me who know I'm not clean. I'm not clean. Like if there's any barriers, there's no chance of me gaining entrance into the kingdom of God. But God in his grace, by his spirit, gave us this story that we would know even the eunuch was welcomed into the waters of baptism. All right, here's our big idea. In the gospel, Christ has obliterated the only barrier that prevents any of us from union with God and infinite joy. In the gospel, Christ has obliterated the only barrier that keeps any of us from union with God and infinite joy. What's that barrier? It's unforgiven sin. What has Christ done in the cross and the empty tomb? He has dealt with our sin. Nothing prevents any of us from full entrance into the kingdom of God. This is why our hearts race on Easter Sunday. Because when Jesus rose from the dead in victory, we knew that the only thing keeping us from God had been dealt with, had been overcome. And so now we dive into the waters of baptism. We come out wet and clean, pursuing holiness for the rest of our lives, knowing that we are one with God 
by his spirit in Christ because of his grace. This is the truth that we're celebrating today. Suzanne does not deserve to be within a thousand miles of the kingdom of Jesus. I do not deserve to be within a thousand and ten miles of the kingdom of Jesus. We're all eunuchs. We're all unclean. But in Christ, we've all been made new. We know that to be true because he died, and we know that to be true because he rose. This is the good news of the gospel. We will be celebrating this good news forever and ever and ever. I have no idea what that's going to look like. It's going to be way better than our little pea brains can imagine. I heard someone saying, trying to understand the glories of the heaven that is promised to us is like an ant trying to figure out the lights in Vegas. Just that brain is not going to figure that strip out, but at least an ant can look up and go, whoa. That's what our hearts are supposed to do. Whoa. God has promised me infinite joy. Infinite joy. Infinite joy in his son. On Easter Sunday, that was secured for us. Jesus was raised to what? An infinite life. An indestructible life, the scripture calls it. And you are invited in. Now, if you want to stay lost in your sins, if you want to be the God of your own life, if you want to reject this gospel, you're crazy. You can do it. God will allow you to. But if you are done with your uncleanness, and you are done with the old you, and you want to walk in the light as he is in the light, the promise of the scriptures is that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. All sin. In the gospel, Christ has obliterated the only thing standing between you and I and union with God and infinite joy. That's what we're celebrating today. All right, let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would visit this ridiculous, tiny, little church, hundreds of people amidst uh, four million, hundreds of thousands in this direct area. But we know that you are the God of the mustard seed that becomes the biggest tree in the garden. We, knew you, we know that you are the God who could take one life, the life of your son, just one death, and raise him to dead that he might welcome in a countless multitude from every tribe and tongue, and nation on earth, including some Bostonians. We want in on the kingdom of God. We want to walk in the light we so bad want to be done with our sin. We want to walk in the light as you are in the light, so that we may have fellowship with each other, and so that the blood of Jesus can cleanse us from all of our sins. I thank you that your promise is to do that in us. I thank you that nothing prevents us from being welcomed into the arms of the Father, and we run there in repentance and in faith this morning. And I thank you that the best news that exists in the world is the empty tomb of Jesus Christ for us. We revel in it this morning. Hear my prayer. Amen. Amen.